1: Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show.
2: So President Joe Biden was already not doing too hot, but then Roe v Wade was overturned and now his numbers have collapsed. And it's not just that voters overall net disapprove of his job performance but his own base democratic party voters now do not want him to run for president in 2024 even though he insists that he will indeed be seeking a second term now this new poll from the new york times and siena college that we're going to talk about demonstrates that if he chooses to go forward and actually run again It will be a colossal disaster for Democrats, and he'll be essentially handing the keys to the White House to Donald Trump, or Ron DeSantis. As Shane Goldmacher explains, President Biden is facing an alarming level of doubt from inside his own party, with 64% of Democratic voters saying they would prefer a new standard-bearer in the 2024 presidential campaign, according to a New York Times-Siena College poll, as voters nationwide have soured on his leadership, giving him a meager 33% job approval rating. Jesus Christ! Only 13% of American voters said the nation was on the right track, the lowest point in Time's polling since the depths of the financial crisis more than a decade ago. The backlash against Mr. Biden and desire to move in a new direction were particularly acute among younger voters. In the survey, 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 said they would prefer a different presidential nominee. I'm going to repeat that last sentence to you. In this survey, 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 said they would prefer a different presidential nominee. This is horrific. But is anyone really surprised by this? What has Joe Biden delivered for young people? I mean, think about the way that he has handled or I should say mishandled the student debt crisis. We keep hearing about how he's going to do something okay, well, it's not as big as we had hoped, but he's going to cancel $10,000. Oh, well, we're going to hear about that in two weeks. That time comes and goes. We still don't hear anything. He's just dragging us along, and we don't necessarily know what to do. It's like we're in a state of limbo, and it seems as if now we're getting indications that he's going to restart repayment of student loans because they were on pause due to the pandemic, which is still very much going on, by the way, and he's just... He's gone silent on it. And speaking of the pandemic, we have another wave thanks to a new Omicron variant, BA5, and he's just given up. So he's stopped being a president effectively. I mean, he tries to be a head of state in some ways and symbolically lead the country, but when it comes to governing, he's just MIA. He's just gone. And it gets worse when you consider the way that he responded to Roe. And we'll get to that in a second here, but I want to get to more from this poll. So two-thirds of independents disapprove. That is disaster when it comes to swing states. Uh, Additionally, only 26% of Democratic voters want him to run for re-election. In other words, if he chooses to run and become the nominee again, um, I mean, with that much voters demoralized, they're not going to turn out. And if turnout is low, that means that Republicans will win. So if he chooses to run again unilaterally, he's just giving the White House to a Republican. If he cares about this country, he would put his ego aside and step down. Okay, now, Democratic Party primary voters don't necessarily seem to have formed a consensus on who they want to run. If you look at some opinion polls from at least May, it showed Kamala Harris at top, but she's part of the Biden administration, so you would think that she wouldn't have that high of an approval. You see Michelle Obama. They're kind of all over the pra- uh, all over the place, so I think that you have to see a robust primary take place. But that can't happen if Biden doesn't announce ahead of time that, hey, I'm not going to be running again. Because if he chooses to run again, um, then there's going to be no primary, obviously, because, I mean, primarying an incumbent president is next to impossible. But if he chooses to step down, he needs to make this announcement as quickly as possible. So that way, people who want to run for president have the opportunity to prepare. But I think he's actually going to run again. I I mean, I have no idea. It's not guaranteed that at at this point he keeps reiterating his intent to run. But if he does, I mean, truly, this is... A disaster. And I think that ultimately what it's going to come down to is whether or not the donors say, hit the road. Because the Democratic Party doesn't listen to its own base. So if the donors say, we're done, Biden, we're done, DNC, no more money unless you choose to kick him out. And it's not like you can kick him out, but he has to choose willingly to resign. But if the donors reach that point, then that's when I think that you're going to see him say, okay, changing gears a little bit, I will not be seeking a second term. Now, there's more. In an opinion piece for Salon, Amanda Marcotte, who I don't always agree with, actually had a really astute observation, in my opinion, and she talked about how there's this revolt within the Democratic Party due to his limp response to Roe v. Wade. Now, this is because Democrats are united on this particular issue. Both centrists and leftists have coalesced around this issue of abortion. They agree. There's no disagreement there. There's no Medicare for all versus public option. There's no free community college versus free all college. It's everyone agrees women should have the right to choose. So for you to not lead the charge as the leader of this party, that is a terrifying strategy or lack thereof. And Amanda Marcotte explains that this is why his approval rating has collapsed. Because if you see your party united on this particular issue when when there's been a lot of divisions, a civil war effectively going on in in the Democratic Party, and it's still going on, to be clear, but when you see them all coalesce around this one issue and you don't use that as an opportunity to fight and galvanize your base and bring the party together, that is a failure of leadership that is a failure of leadership. And Biden is proving that he can't meet the moment. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Politico's Alex Thompson reported that, quote, Biden and officials are concerned that more radical moves would be politically polarizing ahead of November's midterm elections undermine public trust in institutions like the Supreme Court or lack strong legal footing, sources inside and outside the White House say. So you have the totality of your base essentially screaming at you do something 84 percent of voters in your party say we strongly want women to have the right to an abortion we strongly support roe v wade and that's just the strongly agree at 84 percent there's other people who just simply agree so like all democrats essentially are in lockstep and biden is just too afraid to do anything literally but it's deeper than that he actually is insulting the people who are calling on him to take action. As the Daily Beast reports, Biden's administration is calling some pro-choice activists' views out of step with the party. Imagine saying this. So they write, the White House tried to defend President Joe Biden's seemingly drowsy response to the reversal of Roe v. Wade on Saturday, but instead sparked an instant backlash by labeling pro-choice activists, quote, out of step. The apparent jab was made in a statement to the Washington Post, responding to criticism of what many Democrats see as a response that has been too little too late. White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield said the president has been showing his deep outrage as an American and executing his bold plan, yeah right, which is the product of months of hard work ever since this decision was handed down. She went on to say that Joe Biden's goal in responding to Dobbs is not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party, but to deliver help to women who are in danger and assemble a broad-based coalition to defend a woman's right to choose now, just as he assembled such a coalition to Win in the 2020 campaign. Okay, they're not clear here, but comments like this are very obviously not helpful because, again, the Democratic Party is unified on the issue of abortion. So, what views are out of step with the public? I mean, there has been a variety of responses that people expect from Biden. Okay, you can pack the Supreme Court you can reform the judiciary so that way there's term limits, so that way you curtail their ability to do judicial review or, you know, overturn precedent. You you can do certain things, but if you don't want to do that, you can take executive actions to set up abortion clinics on federal land. But he's not really doing anything. The response that we've seen has been mealy-mouthed. And last week, he, uh, he signed an executive order that comes far too late, and it's also meaningless because it doesn't really do anything to protect a woman's right to choose. So he's not even doing the bare minimum. And now his administration is resorting to insulting some abortion activists who are apparently out of step. Who's out of step? Centrists and leftists aren't united on anything. But on the issue of abortion, they're united. Whether or not they like apple pie is probably more controversial, right? So for the Biden administration to bungle this, it just... It speaks to his incompetence and why people don't want him to run. So if he chooses to run after he's proven that he cannot meet this moment, I mean, he's selfish. He's selfish because he's choosing to give the keys to the White House over to whatever fascist the Republicans choose to nominate. And he's doing that because of his ego, because he refuses to step down. It's just genuinely shocking. And when you see so much dissatisfaction with younger people, and the Democratic Party at large not doing anything to try to bring them in, rather they keep trying to push them away, you just see why we're in such bad shape as a country. Because if you see the rise of fascism in the United States, an emboldened authoritarian Christian right, and you have an opposition party that isn't really doing anything and too afraid to act and insulting their own base, you set up the situation where democracy is on the decline. And that's where we find ourselves right now, unfortunately.
3: Would you ban transition surgery for adults? I don't know. Really? Yeah, really. See, We're paying a me, big price for it. And I, well, think, that, I think that it was um, it was a, an act of stunning hubris to conduct the first trans surgery procedure. But, and it's not obvious to me at all that it's been a net social good.
2: That was right-wing pseudo-intellectual Jordan Peterson, unwilling to definitively say whether or not he believes that transgender adults should have the freedom to medically transition. Yeah. So the only other conservative, as far as I'm aware of, that has taken this extreme of a position is Matt Walsh, who self-identifies as a theocratic fascist. Now, if you are a so-called intellectual, to come to the same conclusion as an out-and-proud fascist is definitely a little bit worrisome and you'd think that he'd care about his reputation, considering that he has sounded the alarm about authoritarianism and how he fears it, but now he's proving more and more that that was nothing more than projection. Because to not allow an adult the freedom to live the way that they want to live is an overtly, explicitly authoritarian stance. But I mean, Jordan Peterson has dropped the facade of being an intellectual, and now he's just a typical reactionary extremist who's coming to conclusions based on his own emotions. And emotionally unhinged, lately, he seems to be. Now, this was such a bad look for him that his own fans on his own subreddit were cringing in response to this interview with Kyle Kalinske. One person writes, Rule 10, be precise in your speech. Jordan said, quote, criminal and then redefined what criminal meant to fit his narrative. Criminal is a person who has committed a crime. A crime is an action or omission that constitutes an offense that may be prosecuted by the state and is punishable by law. What Jordan Peterson said is objectively false. The doctor was not a criminal and did not act outside the law," they're referencing Elliot Page's doctor. I'm very upset to see Jordan Peterson going down this path because I feel like most of what he says is important and true. He needed to correct himself here and instead he doubled down. Again, this is one of his own fans reciting his own book to him. This person says, "'Christ, Jordan Peterson comes across really bad in this. He's catastrophizing, angry, and relies heavily on the interviewer to calm him down enough to actually have a conversation. When he gets a question he doesn't want to answer, he falls back to, what do you mean by almost always to deflect rather than genuinely inquire. Another person writes, God, Jordan is such a bitter fucking asshole now. The bad vibes coming off him are suffocating and it's not like I disagree with his point that kids shouldn't be having these surgeries but for him to blame a trans celebrity and say he has a responsibility to be or act a certain way, fuck off with that conservative shit. Then for him to not even say an adult should be able to get the surgery they want, WTF has happened to this man. This person writes jordan peterson five years ago i will respect the wishes of any transgender individual who requests to be referred to to as a certain pronoun just don't compel me by law to do that the bill didn't compel him to use different pronouns anyway jordan peterson now this he she they is grooming children into becoming trans he shouldn't have appeared in so many magazines gender affirming surgery should not be legal i mean when your own fans think that you're no longer an effective communicator of the message that they want you to deliver that's when you've lost the plot. And it seems like Jordan Peterson has been mentally unwell for a while. He cries very frequently, melts down, reacts in abrasive ways. And we're gonna watch another clip where Kyle couldn't even really ask him a question without him just pushing back and playing semantic games in a really overly emotional and bizarre way, quite frankly, take a look.
3: I just have to say, Jordan, I think it's a little bit of a moral panic. I just don't see some sort of, you know, Frenzy of okay. What would you consider become trans? What? First of all, that's a hell of a way to put it. What? Is, Why don't you that? take a look at the increases in surgical interventions and see what you think? I mean, how many do you think well, is too many? Again, many, well, look. The, if we're talking about, I'll, I'll answer your question. I'll answer your question. The argument is it it used to be very repressed because that's very outside of the tradition and the norm and the standard. And that now we sort of let the boot be, off the neck a little bit. Suppressed. What used to be suppressed? As the, exactly. the entire LGBTQ community. I mean, it was very recently we okay, even got gay all, marriage in the a com- United States. First of all, they're not a community. Well, you understand what is the point I'm community? making. No, I'm, no, actually, neither I understand it nor you. And that's why we're delving into it. <laughs> first of all, they're not a community. That's just a catchphrase. It's a buzzword.
2: Yeah. So that right there is why his fans are turning on him, because even if they agree with the message that he's espousing, they don't believe that he is an effective deliverer of said message. And you could see Kyle was in good faith trying to have a conversation with him. But this intellectual didn't want to have a conversation. He was playing semantics games. Unbelievable. This is what the right wing has to offer when it comes to intellectuals, really. It seems like this is a really petulant child who refuses to engage in good faith with someone who just wants to have a conversation and push back if need be now jordan peterson is going to concern troll in this interview about gay people and claim that really it's not transgender people who are transitioning gay people are being diagnosed with gender dysphoria and they're the ones who are transition transitioning overwhelmingly so um now He's no ally to gay people, even though he's implying that he is, because before he's explained how he supports conversion therapy. But really, the reason why he thinks that transgender people, transgender adults in particular, shouldn't be allowed to transition, presumably, is because he thinks it's trendy. So he's tweeted before about how 40% of Zoomers identify with the LGBTQ plus community. And it's not necessarily because in his view, society is becoming more open minded. It's because gender ideology, according to him, is being pushed on people. So this is a trend more than people just being their authentic self as society evolves. But there's two problems with that. First and foremost, we've seen historically how marginalized people come out of the closet when their identity is no longer socially stigmatized. For example, look at the history of left-handedness. I'll put the chart on the screen. I mean, this was something that was heavily demonized before, and then there was an explosion of left-handed people once it was socially acceptable to become left-handed. But it wasn't going to be the case ever that left-handed people would become 100% of the population, it's just that we found out the true number of left-handed people. And this was because times changed, it was no longer stigmatized. And another reason why what he's saying is wrong is because in order to suggest that being a trans is like a trend, As people try to, you know, claim sometimes, Terps make this claim as well, well, there would have to be an overwhelmingly large number of people who are detransitioning. And that's not happening. In fact, doctors overwhelmingly are getting gender uh, gender dysphoria diagnoses correct. As NBC News explains, transgender children are unlikely to detransition or come to identify with their birth sex five years after their social transition, a new study found. The findings, published Wednesday in the journal Pediatrics, comes from a larger project called the Trans Youth Project. Researchers at Princeton University began in 2013 to track 317 kids between the ages of 3 and 12 who socially transitioned, the first and largest sample of its kind, according to Christina Olson, the study's lead author and a professor of psychology at Princeton. The results showed that five years after their initial social transition, 94% of the study participants were living as either trans girls or trans boys. The remaining youth had retransitioned, as the study called it, and no longer identified as binary transgender. Of that group, 2.5% came to identify with their birth sex. So the reason why this study is so important is because it is the first study of its kind where it tracks the development of trans youth for a long period of time and they're talking about social transition, trans children aren't being given surgeries. Like, this is what they try to make it seem as if like, okay, this young child is going to come out and then they'll have bottom surgery and then come to regret it. But that's not happening. If you know anyone who's a trans adult, They'll tell you how expensive transitioning is in a country where we don't have universal healthcare. So this certainly isn't happening with children. But this is tracking children who are transgender and it is confirming that the retransition rate is so low that proves that doctors are getting it right. This isn't a trend. Far from it, in fact, but still, regardless of what the studies show, regardless of professionals saying this is medically necessary for trans youth. Jordan Peterson not only says that this is wrong and it's a trend, but he uses his emotional response to deduce that because kids are being influenced by adults, well, maybe we should consider banning adults from transitioning as well. It's truly authoritarian. Now, as Sean Wilcoxon of The Lever explains, junk science is being used to attack trans youth. In Florida and elsewhere, Republican lawmakers are using faulty research to deny young people access to vital gender-affirming care. He explains, early last month, the Florida Agency for Healthcare Administration, which regulates the state's Medicaid program and health facilities, declared several services for the treatment of gender dysphoria, i.e. sex reassignment surgery, cross-sex hormones, and puberty blockers are not consistent with generally accepted professional medical standards and are experimental and investigational with the potential for harmful long-term effects. This determination flies in the face of scientific consensus. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Medical Association are just a few of the many medical associations that deem gender-affirming care crucial for transgender youth. Policies like this that make social and medical transitioning difficult or impossible for young people could have disastrous effects on trans youth who are already at very high risk of suicide. A 2021 peer reviewed study by the Trevor Project, a nonprofit that supports LGBTQ plus teens, published in the Journal of Adolescent Health, found that gender affirming hormone therapy led to significantly lower rates of depression, suicidal thoughts, and suicide attempts among transgender and non binary youth. These are facts based on a consensus of medical professionals. So for a clinical psychologist like Jordan Peterson to reject the consensus of the medical community and claim that he is just looking out for children and their well-being, it is absurd. If you care about children, then you would allow them to socially transition to get puberty blockers because this is what helps them. But Jordan Peterson is not coming to his conclusion, his anti-trans conclusion on the basis of science or facts or even reason. He's coming to that conclusion on the basis of his religion and reactionary views. And it's really ironic that this individual always talks about how the left is authoritarian. Oh, well, they're authoritarian because they want to impose beauty standards on you with plus-sized models in Sports Illustrated or whatever. But yet he himself is saying that adults should not be allowed to medically transition, possibly. He hasn't said that definitively, but he's dropped the veneer of intellectualism. There's no longer that facade now. He's just a hateful bigot who has a vendetta against trans people for some reason. And it's really despicable and gross. And you can see how unhinged he is when he refuses to engage in good faith with someone who just wants to get to the bottom of his views. But there's no rational basis for his views. So you see why he comes across as so emotional. But keep talking, Jordan Peterson, because the more that you talk, the more you prove our points for us.
0: You yeah, got rid of the pipeline. Yeah. Get rid of the pipeline, get rid of our energy. Start this downfall because we need energy for everything. Do y'all know that? Yeah. And they were talk about the Green New Deal. You know, climate change. I'm going to help you all with that real quickly, and I'm going to do it in the field way, so you can understand what I'm saying. We, in America, have some of the cleanest air and cleanest water of anybody in the world. So what we do is we're going to put from the Green New Deal millions or like billions of dollars cleaning our good air up. So all of a sudden, China and India ain't putting nothing in there, cleaning that situation up. So with all that bad air is still there. But since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over to China, bad air. So when China gets our good air, that bad air got to move. So it moves over to our good air space. And now we got to clean that back
4: up. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works.
2: That was United States Senate candidate Herschel Walker explaining that America has good air and good water. Don't tell that to the residents of Flint, because I think that they take issue with that factually inaccurate statement. But we have good air, good water, some of the best in the world. And on top of that, um, we shouldn't have to worry about climate change because we need oil for everything. So he'll take care of it. I think I'm beginning to wrap my head around what he's saying after watching that video literally like 10 different times. But um, so he says, this is a direct quote, since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over to China's bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air has got to move. So it moves over to our good airspace. Then now we got to clean that back up. So it's not really us, it's China. So we'll put good air into the atmosphere. We'll create the air, pump it into the atmosphere, and then China will just produce bad air. So his solution is, presumably, we make a deal with China. We strike a deal. We give them 10 air in exchange for uh, five bad air. Or no, no, I have it backwards. We say, China, we're going to give you 25 bad air if you give us 50 good air but we'll give you money with it so that way you're taking the bad air but we're getting majority good air What the hell did you just say I'm really struggling here um this is a US Senate candidate that is genuinely unfit to serve um and it's it's sad I don't want to go too hard on him because it feels ableist it feels wrong there's obviously mental health issues there but if you really have no knowledge of these policy issues that affects the world, I'm sorry, you you just, you can't serve in the U.S. Senate. It's too important of a job. You, you can't do that. It just, and the worst part is that the audience was applauding, clapping like seals, as he said, the most incoherent shit imaginable. Now, he's doing so poorly that he had to kind of shake up his campaign, hire new people, because Republicans they have no hope. They don't know what he's doing. The Washington Post reported that the National Republican Senatorial Committee, concerned about Walker's performance as a candidate, encouraged a reset of his campaign operation after a series of controversies, which included a July 7th report by the Daily Beast that Walker lied to his campaign staff about the number of children he has fathered. He's also fumbled some policy explanations on the campaign trail. NRSC Communications Director Chris Hartline declined to comment on discussions with Walker's campaign, but said the campaign makes its own hiring decisions. A Walker campaign spokesman person didn't immediately respond to a message seeking comment. Walker won the May 24th GOP primary in Georgia by more than 50 percentage points after he was endorsed by former President Donald Trump, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and other prominent national Republicans. But recent polls show a close race in November with Warnock. A Quinnipiac University poll released June 29th showed Warnock with a 10-point lead, but a survey by the Progressive Group Data for Progress in early June showed Walker with a two-point lead. The Cook Political Report rates the race a toss up. So, yeah, this very well could be a U.S. senator when he very clearly is demonstrably unfit to serve. I just I feel like with issue after issue, if you don't demonstrate. Any knowledge or even interest at all, then why are you? Why do this? Why run? This is one of those situations um, where the family I have to place the blame on them they need to intervene and have a conversation with him and say herschel you shouldn't be doing this right i said this about trump i said this about biden back in 2019 as well um you know if somebody has demonstrated that they don't necessarily have the mental acuity uh to serve in a position of power and they could pose a threat to the country because of their demonstrable inability to serve then we we have to do something but i mean it doesn't really matter we don't look at qualifications anymore as a country we just look at what somebody says and if you can recite at least a couple of talking points then the base will go along with it whoever says the most talking points it's like fucking political bingo oh well he said crt and he called out um trans people and also he said that uh, we should have more private like if you just and I'm I'm not really representing their talking points well enough but you get the point right if you just play the greatest hits then that's all you have to do you don't have to demonstrate knowledge you don't have to prove that you're more qualified or even have an interest in running for congress because you care about your constituents you just have to say what they want to hear and they just applaud like NPCs it's just it's a sad state of affairs but this is american politics in 2022 and i don't see it changing anytime soon unfortunately and that makes me feel really depressed about the state of the world but i mean if you go back and watch the movie idiocracy by mike judge i swear to god like i'm not being hyperbolic here there are some politicians in that movie where they're purposefully acting stupid that are more intelligent than elected officials in the united states watch the movie if you don't believe me like, they were literally watering crops in that movie with Gatorade and wondering why they were starving. But we're reaching a level where that's a parody that's indistinguishable from today's America. And that's really horrifying, but that that's what we're working with. So we have to deal with it and find some way to wake Americans up and get them to stop falling for people like this. But how do you do that when there's so much brainwashing through mainstream media, reactionary news? I don't know. Senator Nina Turner appeared on CNN, and I want to share what she said. Not necessarily because I think that you're going to be surprised Uh, at what she's saying, because really, I mean, we've all been saying this. She's been saying this for years, but this is important because of who she's saying this to. CNN's Normie audience probably doesn't come to this conclusion, even if it really is seemingly common sense. You know, all of this conversation about Biden being primaried in 2024, his lower approval rating, it wouldn't be happening if Biden and the Democratic Party actually satisfied their base and delivered. But the reason why we're having this discussion, even if you don't want to admit it, if you're a Democratic Party loyalist, is because they have been demonstrable failures. Take a
5: look. Nina, Senator, you're a Democrat who has been critical of Joe Biden over the years. This news reported by Isaac this morning is that Democrats are not at this point going to primary Joe Biden and they're warning others to not do the same in other words stay out of this do you think that's the right path
6: well this is john and Brian. this is about life and death so if the democrats my party wants to push back the neo-fascist a tidal wave that is happening from the courts to the streets, then it is going to have to deliver and change material conditions for the people. Yes, people should come out to vote as if their lives depend on it in November, this November, next November, and every November after that. But what my party must do, since it controls all the levers of power in both chambers of the United States Congress and the presidency, is they need to contort themselves through public policy as if their lives depend on it. People need relief in this country. And one way to back off any primary challenge, should there be one, is to deliver for the people. It is to give them something that they can feel. It is to cancel student debt. It is to go ham on this extremist Supreme Court. It is to embody the spirit and tradition of President FDR. And one of my fears, John and Brianna, in this particular moment, since, the, since people are so desperate and the pain is so deep, is that this Congress and this president are not bold enough for the moment. So we should not be basing the whole measure on what is best for the Democratic Party. We should measure based on what is best for Big Mama and Big Daddy and who where people are misunderstood, whether it's the rural hood, the urban hood, or the suburban hood. That is how you settle whether or not there will be a primary deliver for the people.
2: That was great. Now, there's more. I'll, I'll play a second clip for you in a second. But when she said that she fears that Congress and this president, they're just not bold enough to meet this moment, that resonated with me because I feel like it is provably true, right? I mean, look at what's happening. The Supreme Court has gone rogue. It's been taken over by far-right theocratic zealots and they're taking away right after right after right. And there's no expectation that Democrats will react with the urgency that is required for this particular moment. So everyone currently in the country is catastrophizing, thinking about, well, how long until we lose marriage equality? How long until the right to contraception goes away? Is it two years, three years? And now, Knowing that the Supreme Court is taking on Moore v. Harper, how long can we even elect leaders? Because they could kill democracy, effectively, in the United States. And that's not a hyperbole. I did a video on this. It's pinned to my Twitter page. Watch it. Because right now, the Supreme Court poses a grave danger to democracy. And the problem is that Democrats, they're saying that Republicans are the problem, but they're not acting. If you truly believed that Republicans pose a threat to democracy, then you can't just repeat vote because you didn't pass voting rights. I mean, if they go through with Moore v. Harper and the Supreme Court finds that independent state legislature theory is valid and state legislatures controlled by Republicans can choose the presidents and choose members of the House in perpetuity, then the power to vote is even further diminished and we don't even have. A good democracy to begin with. To call it a democracy is really, I think, a stretch. So, yes, of course, you're going to tell your voters that voting is important. But the problem with the Democratic Party is that that's their only solution. Oh, well, you want row codified Vote. But they're not actually wielding the power that they have for the limited amount of time before the election. And that's a problem. And that's what Nina Turner is going to get more into in this next clip here.
6: Let's take this to the streets. The American people don't have time for folks to sit up here and pontificate we know exactly why those governors are dipping their toe in the water because it's just in case. So they send in a little signal that if indeed the president runs for re-election, we not go, we won't run against you. But just in case something happens, let's go ahead and tell the truth about this. So Mr. Trippi has the luxury of being cool, calm, and collected about what is happening in this country while people's lives are being destroyed. We understand that the Republicans are recalcitrant. They are no good. Today's Republicans are no good, and they are. Are a clear and present danger to democracy as we know it. So if we do know that, then let's act like we know it. Our My party has control of the Congress and the presidency, and they should wield that power as if they have that power. They should wield it as if the neo-fascists that are trying to take over this country, starting with that Supreme Court, is a danger, and use the power on behalf of the people. Don't play with it. Don't be timid with it. Use it. And one of the ways you can use it is to expand the court. The, the United States Congress, there is a bill pending to expand the court. The president is kind of whole hum on that. They should use uh, federal lands to allow abortion clinics to be there. They should ensure that throughout this country that the abortion drug is available, even in states where, the, like my state, where you can no longer get an abortion, even you know, six weeks. We must use that power in a way that gives people something that they can feel and stop playing games. This is an emotional time for this country. Yes, the Republicans are dangerous and my party needs to act like it. It's just like having some firefighters come to your house, John and Brianna, and they got all the equipment and the fire chief says, you know what? We can't come in yet because we got to wait for a few more firefighters, even though they have all the tools at their disposal to put out the fire. My message to my party is that we have all the tools at our disposal to put out the the fire and we need to get at it so that people are more motivated to come out, not just because of clear and present danger to our democracy, but that we have elected leaders who feel their pain and who will ameliorate their pain. This so I want is- my party to stop playing games and let's get the business. This
2: Everything she's saying is spot on. If you believe that Republicans pose a clear and present danger to democracy, then you have to act like they pose a clear and present danger to democracy. You can't hope and pray that you get a couple of more senators so you can abolish the filibuster more easily. No, you act right now. If Manchin and Cinema refuse to budge, then you use carrots, you use sticks. Uh, Biden can fire his wife, who he gave a position. You can try to, I don't know, coax them into supporting abolishing the filibuster or creating a carve-out to the filibuster to codify Roe by saying, here's some pork for West Virginia. I don't care what you have to do, but you have to try. And the fact that they're refusing to try right now and they're just telling you that the onus is on you and you have to vote is completely unacceptable. Of course, people need to vote. Voting is important. But they're diminishing the importance of their role. They're diminishing their responsibility. And that is not acceptable. Do you want to know what the former RNC chief, Michael Steele, said about Republicans? He said that when they retake power, without hesitation, they will get rid of the filibuster and institute a nationwide abortion ban because, quote, that's the difference politically between the two parties. Republicans will go, oh, yeah, the Constitution and the filibuster, all the tradition, the sanctity of the Senate, they don't give a rat's patootie about that when it's the bottom-line line in politics and power, and that's the difference between the two parties. Republicans are evil, but they're effective, they know how to wield power, whereas Democrats, they don't know how to wield power. And I'd argue that they're not necessarily good, they're not, they're not as evil as Republicans, they're still pretty evil, but what good that they want to do? Such as codifying Roe, you know, uh, bringing back voting rights, electoral reform. They just they don't know how to wield power effectively when they have power they don't use it and that's a really serious issue and i love the analogy that nina turner used about the firefighters imagine you call the fire department and you expect them to put out a fire at your house but they show up with all the gear all the equipment but they say well we're not going to do anything because we don't have enough firefighters here it's unacceptable And that's a perfect analogy for this current moment. Democrats are in control of all branches of uh, government, excluding the Supreme Court, of course, but they have the White House, they have Congress and the Senate. To not act or at least try to wield power is an abdication of duty. It's being complicit. the harm that republicans are doing to this country and as one twitter user put it uvaldi was like a microcosm for america the gop is the active shooter and the democrats are the cops dithering around outside not helping any kids but doing their best to prevent anyone else from helping them america's trying to talk its way out of handcuffs to save some kids and that is exactly right you have their entire base crying out and they're not meeting the moment i mean when it comes to the issue of abortion Democrats are united, centrists and leftists agree that Roe must be codified, action must be taken to protect the right of women to choose. And so when you have your whole party currently united on something, to not use that to galvanize the base and act and act with authority. It's just it's criminal, in my opinion. Now, there's a plethora of reasons, legal, institutional, generational reasons as to why the Democratic Party refuses to deliver for their base when the Republican Party, their base constantly gets what they want every deranged priority that they want, they have lawmakers that have consistently tried to at least deliver. And the reason why that is, is because the GOP fears the base, whereas the Democratic Party has no regard for what their base wants. And in a brilliant op-ed for The Lever, David Sirota explains why this is the case. So it's titled, It is Time for Democrats to Fear Their Own Voters. And I wanted to read you a couple of paragraphs because this is really important. He writes, while Republican normie voters were being radicalized by Fox News and talk radio, Democratic normie voters were being anesthetized by NPR. The New York Times, The Atlantic, and MSNBC, which taught them to believe that an extremist like John Roberts is a lovable moderate, Mike Pence is an American hero, George Bush is a decent guy, and an operative who installed Sam Alito on the court is a warrior for democracy. That media machine convinced Democratic normies to believe the highest calling of citizenship was to simply line up behind party approved candidates, crush progressive challengers in primaries, and vote blue no matter who in general elections, and then do nothing more, even when electable conservative Democrats lost. In the few winners produced no change. The worst thing anyone could do, they taught voters, was criticize, pressure, or protest Democratic leaders to try to get them to do anything. Quote, Politicians respond to only one thing, power, wrote Tanahasi Coates back in 2011. This is not the flaw of democracy. It's the entire point. It's the job of activists to generate and apply enough pressure on the system to affect change. That's how the American right ultimately brought us to this horrible moment. They conditioned Republican voters to actually expect and demand things and punish them those who wouldn't deliver. That same attitude is what's needed from Democratic voters now. Not just rage aimed at the conservative ideologues turning back the clock, but also rage at the Democrats who control the government today. Those elected officials must be forced kicking and screaming against their own desires to actually produce, not tomorrow, now. And I'll link you to the full article. It's worth the read. Democratic Party voters have been conditioned to not expect anything. And, you know, they are in this situation where the Democratic Party blames them if elections are lost. They don't blame themselves, they're never introspective, and that really is a serious problem. And I'm currently rereading Howard Zinn's um, The People's History of America, and I've gotta say, at every point in time where it mattered, liberals have been useless, spineless, and they often went along with McCarthyism or abuse of the conservatives in the country until activists demanded that they act. By getting really rowdy and exerting so much pressure on Democrats, they had no choice but to act. And we're at a moment where Democratic Party voters have to do the same thing. When they tell you that the solution to the threat Republicans pose to democracy is to vote, you reject that entirely. That is not the only solution. The solution is that Democrats must fight and people must make it known that they're unwilling to accept what the Democratic Party is selling them currently. We're not buying it any longer. It's time to get rowdy when they tell you, you know, don't don't be uncivilized. You reject that, okay? It's time to make the Democratic Party fear their voters because even if there are other institutional things that make them corrupt or inept, if they fear their voters, if they fear that there will be repercussions if they don't deliver, that will at least make us better off, better suited to stave off this threat of fascism. So, yeah, I'll leave that there. Everything that Nina Turner said was perfect, and it's incumbent on us to educate normie Democrats who consume CNN and MSNBC and make them realize you can't just accept everything that the Democratic Party tells you. You can't keep punching left and blaming Bernie bros or blaming third parties. The onus is on Democrats. They have power currently, and if they fail to deliver, that's on them. And we can't let them fail. We have to force their hand. Period. End of story
7: after our last hearing President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings that person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call their lawyer alerted us And this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, we will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back.
2: That was the vice chair of the January 6th select committee directly implicating Donald Trump in witness tampering. She name dropped him. She said he tried to call one of our witnesses. That is brazen. I mean, for those of you who don't know, that is a crime, but it just goes to show you that Donald Trump, there's there's nothing that's going to stop him. He doesn't care. He's shameless. He believes he's above the law, and unfortunately, he may be correct about that. We'll see, though. But to call up a witness when they just exposed witness tampering and the implication was that you were associated, it really proves that, you know, despite these reports about Trump potentially fearing prosecution, deep down, I don't think that he believes he's going to be held accountable. And again, I hate to think that he's correct about this, but it's possible. Now this particular hearing was very interesting, but it really provided us with more context and details about what happened. We learned more about the extremist groups associated with the January 6th insurrection. We heard firsthand accounts about the explosive meeting that took place between Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, and others within Trump's administration who were trying to talk sense into him. And uh, also, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony was corroborated by White House counsel to Donald Trump, Pat Cipollone. So there wasn't that much new, but there were some moments that really stood out to me because of how clear they were in proving Trump's criminality. For example, this is the testimony from one of Trump's supporters explaining how he was hanging on to every word that Donald Trump said. Trump said to march to the Capitol. He did. Trump said to leave. He left. Take a look.
8: You know, earlier today, we showed how Donald Trump's December 19th tweet summoned both extremist groups as well as rank and file supporters of President Trump to come to Washington D.C. Um, average Americans. He he told them to quote, "Be there, we'll be wild," and they came. We showed how Mr. President, uh, uh, how President Trump repeatedly told them, "Fight, fight, fight," and they marched to the Capitol. Um, Mr. Ayers, you were in that crowd at the rally, and then the crowd that marched to the Capitol. When you arrived on the ellipse that morning, were you planning on going to the Capitol?
9: No, we didn't actually plan to go down there. Um, You know, we went basically to see the Stop the Steal rally, and that was it.
8: So why did you decide to march to the Capitol?
9: Um, Well, basically, uh, you know, the president, you know, got everybody riled up. Told everybody head on down, so we basically were just following what he said.
10: I believe that included a video telling people to go home. Um, did you see that, and did that have any effect on what you were doing? Well, when we were there, as soon as that came out, everybody started
9: talking about it, and that's, it seemed like it started to disperse, you know, some of the crowd. Obviously. You know once we got back to the hotel room we seen that it was still going on but it definitely dispersed a lot of the crowd
10: and did you leave at that point Yeah, we did yeah we left so in other words that was the key moment when you decided to leave when president trump told people to go home yeah yeah
2: we left right when that come out i mean that to me is a legal checkmate that ties donald trump directly to the insurrection what he said they did. They were taking his tweets and his words as directions. So it's just it's astonishing to me to think that there's not a 100% guarantee that Trump will land in prison after all of this is concluded. But we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But another video uh, that I wanted to share with you that stood out to me was the testimony of a former oath keeper who had a very, very, I think, important warning about democracy in this country. Take a look.
11: I do. I. I... I think we've gotten exceedingly lucky that more bloodshed did not happen because the potential has been there from the start. And we got very lucky that the loss of life was, and as tragic as it is, that we saw on January 6th, the potential was so much more. Again, all we have to look at is the iconic images of that day with the gallows set up for Mike Pence, for the Vice President of the United States. You know, and, and I do fear for this next election cycle because who knows what that might bring. If if a president that's willing to try to instill and 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 encourage to whip up a civil war amongst his followers using lies and deceit and snake oil, and regardless of the, the human impact. What else is he going to do if he gets elected again? All bets are off at that point. Um, and that's a scary notion. I have three daughters. I have a granddaughter. And I fear for the world that they will inherit if we do not start holding the, these, these people to account.
2: Really well said. And to be clear, it's not just... Trump getting reelected or another insurrection, potentially ending democracy in the United States. It's also now the Supreme Court who poses a direct threat to democracy. If you haven't seen my video about this, look up the case Moore v. Harper. That case alone could single-handedly be the death blow to our democracy. So there is a lot of different threats coming from within to our democracy. And we have to be concerned about this. But one element of protecting democracy is to make sure that people who were overtly trying to overthrow the election, they are prosecuted. And that means Donald Trump, okay? Nobody should be above the law. Now, whether or not he gets prosecuted, I don't know. Again, I referenced how there are articles stating that he is worried about the prospect of prosecution i just feel like he can't be that worried because he's brazen enough to try to tamper with witnesses but at the same time perhaps he believes genuinely that witness tampering is going to help him and not further incriminate him it's hard to get into the mind of somebody who i think is genuinely unhinged and mentally unstable but regardless um Jamie Raskin's closing statement was i think one of the most important moments from this particular hearing because of the ways that he contextualized this moment and democracy itself from a, from a political science perspective which is something that we don't often hear from members of congress but what they say matters but take a look at what jamie raskin said it's worth playing his comments here at length you're not going to see all of it i try to edit out some of it just so that way it's not as long but what he says here very very crucial for every american to hear
10: when donald trump sent out his tweet he became the first president ever to call for a crowd to descend on the capital city To block the constitutional transfer of power. He set off an explosive chain reaction among his followers, but no one mobilized more quickly than the dangerous extremists that we've looked at today. Seizing upon his invitation to fight, they assembled their followers for an insurrectionary showdown against Congress and the Vice President. On January 6th, Trump knew the crowd was angry. He knew the crowd was armed. He sent them to the Capitol anyway. You might imagine that our founders would have been shocked to learn that an American president would one day come to embrace and excuse political violence against our own institutions, or knowingly send an armed mob to attack the Capitol to usurp the will of the people. But you know, Mr. Chairman, the founders were pretty wise about certain things, and at the start of the Republic, they actually warned everyone about Donald Trump. Not by name, of course, but in the course of advising, about the certain prospect that ambitious politicians would try to mobilize violent mobs to tear down our own institutions in service of their insatiable ambitions. In the very first Federalist paper, Alexander Hamilton observed that history teaches that opportunistic politicians who desire to rule at all costs will begin first as demagogues, pandering to the angry and malignant passions of the crowd, but then end up as tyrants, trampling the freedoms and the rights of the people. A violent insurrection to overturn an election is not an abstract thing, as we've heard. Hundreds of people were bloodied, injured, and wounded in the process, including more than 150 police officers, some of them sitting in this room today. In his inaugural address, Trump introduced one commanding image, American carnage. Although that turn of phrase explained little about our country, before he took office, it turned out to be an excellent prophecy of what his rage would come to visit on our people. Mr. Ayers just described how the trust he placed in President Trump as a camp follower derailed his life and nearly wrecked his reputation and his his family. A few weeks ago, we heard Shea Moss and her mother Ruby Freeman, Speaker Rusty Bowers from Arizona, and. Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, described how hate-filled intimidation campaigns by Trump and his followers made them prisoners in their homes and drove their stress and anxiety to soaring new heights when they refused to do Trump's bidding. American carnage, that's Donald Trump's true legacy. His desire to overthrow the people's election and seize the presidency interrupted the counting of electoral college votes for the first time in American history nearly toppled the constitutional order and brutalized hundreds and hundreds of people. The Watergate break-in was like a Cub Scout meeting compared to this assault on our people and our institutions. Mr. Chairman, these hearings have been significant for us and for millions of Americans. And our hearing, next week will be a profound moment of reckoning for America. But the crucial thing is the next step what this committee, what all of us will do to fortify our democracy against coups, political violence, and campaigns to steal elections away from the people. Unlike Mr. Ayers and Mr. Van Tatenhoof, people who have recovered and evolved from their descent into the hell of fanaticism, Donald Trump has only expanded his big lie to cover January 6th itself. He asserts the insurrection was the real election, and the election was the real insurrection. He says his mob greeted our police officers on January 6th with hugs and kisses. He threatens to take one of America's two major political parties with him down the road to authoritarianism, and it is Abraham Lincoln's party, no less. The political scientists tell us that authoritarian parties have two essential features in common, in history and around the world. They do not accept the results of democratic elections when they lose and they embrace political violence as legitimate. And the problem of of incitement to political violence has only grown more serious in the internet age as we have just heard. But this is not the problem of one party, it is the problem of the whole country now. American democracy, Mr. Chairman, is a precious inheritance, something rare in the history of the world and even on Earth today. Constitutional democracy is the silver frame, as Lincoln put it, upon which the golden apple of freedom rests. We need to defend both our democracy and our freedom with everything we have and declare that this American carnage ends here and now. In a world of resurgent authoritarianism and racism and anti-Semitism, let's all hang tough for American democracy.
2: Again, very, very powerful words here. And I'm so glad that people are finally citing political scientists because they've been saying the same thing all along. Because it's science. Democracies are fragile. You have to work to protect democracies. And as flawed as our democracy is... As anemic as our democracy is, what's left of it is at risk of dying. I mean, every single democracy in the world has a shelf life. Empirically, this is a factual statement. This is what political scientists have pointed out. So just because everyone alive in the United States today have only known democracy doesn't mean that that is always going to be our system of governance. I mean, people like Donald Trump, people like Ron DeSantis, the Supreme Court, have worked to undermine our democracy. And it's not just them. Individuals like George W. Bush, the Democratic Party in some instances, stopping members of the Green Party from getting ballot access. This is all a threat to democracy. And if we don't protect our democracy, if we don't abide by the institutions that reinforce our democracy, if we don't further consolidate democracy it dies so this is what i think that jamie raskin's speech made very clear now he said that uh quote the watergate break-in was like a cub scout meeting compared to this assault on our people and our institutions and it's funny that he mentioned this because as i stated in a different video i'm currently rereading howard zinn's the people's history of america and i just got through the watergate portion and as i was reading through the details it was striking to me how unshocking all of that was i i was reading it and thinking that's it they just broke into the dnc and stole fi- files sure that's a crime but the fact that it was this gigantic scandal in the, in the united states that captivated everyone that led to his resignation is shocking to me you know coming from the perspective of post insurrection america in 2022 uh so it, that scandal pales in comparison to what's happening currently in the United States, I'd say that Watergate is less scandalous than the Supreme Court taking up Moore v. Harper, where they could endorse independent state legislature theory, which ends democracy. Now another thing that uh, Jamie Raskin pointed out, he says the crucial thing is the next step. What this committee, what all of us will do to fortify our democracy against coups, political violence and, campaign- and campaigns to steal elections away from the people that right there is key. So he's stopping short of recommending criminal charges to the DOJ. But what he's saying there is what we have to do is fortify our democracy. And the implication is you hold people accountable for attacking democracy. And they've proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Trump indeed directly attacked democracy. He tried to stay in power illegally and unconstitutionally. He directed people to storm the Capitol. I mean, if you don't prosecute him after everything that we've seen, to me, it's no question that democracy dies. It's just a matter of when. And I don't think that that timeline is far out in the future. I mean, like really soon, within years. Now, the last thing um, that Jamie Raskin said, he threatens to take one of America's two major political parties with him down the road to authoritarianism. This is key because Republicans are in lockstep with Donald Trump, even if privately, they don't necessarily agree with everything that he's saying and they know that he's unhinged publicly, They've decided to go along with it because they're too afraid to counter what he's saying now in some respects that's changing right but still if one of two major political parties is becoming explicitly and overtly authoritarian i mean both parties have issues with democracy right look at the primaries for democrats and you can see that there's a lot of issues there uh look at the way that they reject green party ballot access in states where they're in control there's issues with democrats too let's be clear But the way that Republicans are openly anti-democracy, the way that they fabricate lies about elections, I mean, that doesn't just hurt democracy. It poses a grave threat to democracy. It could end democracy, literally. So all of this is, I think, really important. Again, today's hearing, not necessarily as explosive as former hearings, but it just solidifies what we know. And what we know is, as I've stated before, Trump has... To be in prison. If this doesn't end with him in prison, then there's no hope. It's just a matter of time before another demagogue comes along and actually is successful at stealing democracy in the United States. And sure, Trump poses a risk himself to democracy if he's allowed to seek a second term, but it's not just Donald Trump. Let's be real. Ron DeSantis, other authoritarians who are rising up, fascists, are now posing a major threat to democracy because they feel emboldened after Donald Trump was able to stage an insurrection and he still hasn't seen a day of of jail time. So if you want to actually fortify democracy, as Jamie Raskin put it, Trump's got to land in prison.
12: Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women women? No, I don't think, I don't think <laughs> so. So you really.
7: are denying that trans people like this And
12: that you. leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you Absolutely. or are they also treated like this where no, no, you, no, they're, they're told that to they're opening up people to oh, violence? We
7: have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot.
12: Wow, I, I would
2: learn a lot. I've learned you, a lot just I know. in this exchange. Absolutely. Extraordinary. Yep. Um that was amazing so for those of you who don't know that was kiara bridges she is university of california professor of law and she was shutting down senator josh Hawley's transphobic line of questioning during a senate judiciary committee hearing and my favorite part was when she said you should join one of my classes you might learn a lot she said this to a u.s senator like a boss that's perfect that's what you have to do these people They do not deserve our respect, and you can tell that Josh Hawley was trying to be patronizing. He was smugly trying to own her, but she didn't back down, and she's correct. Now, one thing that irritates me about these anti-woke politicians and anti-woke broadcasters is that they oftentimes will talk about the uh, woke PC police trying to tone police other people. But was Kiara Bridges there tone policing anyone? Was she correcting Josh Hawley and said, "No, no, no, it's not women, it's people with the capacity for pregnancy? No, she was just trying to be more inclusive and more factual, to be honest. But she wasn't tone policing. But here you have Josh Hawley seemingly offended that she was using more inclusive language and trying to tone police her. So who's the real tone policers? Is it the woke people or is it the anti-woke people? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now, what I want from people to do, the takeaway from this, is to be like Kiara Bridges. Don't just be a passive ally. Actually confront this type of transphobia. Actually stand up for marginalized people. Because as an ally, if we're just passively supporting, we do nothing to advance their cause. But if we actually vocalize our support for them and defend them when need be, that's what actually helps them solidify not just their rights, but security in the United States, which trans people desperately need currently. Now why was Kiara Bridges there? Well, as Alex Bollinger of LGBTQ Nation explains, Bridges was testifying at a committee hearing about the legal consequences of the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a decision that overturned Roe v. Wade and ended the federal right to an abortion in the United States. So that moment went viral for obvious reasons. It was really nice to see her shut down a transphobic senator. But there are other portions from her testimony that I think were really important and worth sharing. So that's what I want to do. So I want to share a response that she gave to a question asked by Cory Booker. And the point that he was making here was also really important. But she said something that I hadn't previously thought about that really invalidates the argument that Republicans are pushing to kind of make people feel better about this this uh, whole abortion being returned to the state's issue. Take a look.
13: I've been looking at just data and seeing that states that provide a great access to contraception, free access to contraception, actually lower rates of unwanted pregnancies, like Colorado, lower rates of abortion by empowering women and low-income women in particular. In the the dissent uh, of the Dobbs case, they pointed out what to me was absurd the reality that many of the states moving to create the most restrictive bans on abortion are the very states that aren't doing the things that are obvious to lower the rates of maternal death, like expanding Medicaid. And, and, and so this argument that they value life by not providing access to contraception, by not expanding Medicaid, their states have some of the worst records for women dying in pregnancy-related causes. It seems rank hypocrisy to me, and especially as it affects African-American women who die three times more. And I was wondering if you just maybe, Dr. Nichols and Dr. Bridges, could just as cogently as possible in the limited time I have left, can you just talk about how these bans in the name of life, are actually causing so much more death uh, in communities, especially for the most vulnerable women.
7: Um, I'm just going to take 30 seconds, and then I'll pass it to you. Um, Thank you so much for that question. I want to also point out that the states that are passing the most restrictive uh, laws around abortion are also the states that are preventing people from voting. Um, Senator Lee, Senator Cruz have talked about oh, this decision just to returned, this uh, Dobbs decision just returns it to, to the elected representatives of states to, and people can battle it out in these laboratories of democracy as to whether they want to protect fetal life over the interests of, of the pregnant person. These are the same states that are stopping people from voting. Texas has the most restrictive voting laws on the books. Texas' SB8 doesn't represent the will of the majority of Texans. Texas' SB8 represents the will of the majority of Texans that were able to vote. So in order for this to be a democracy, we have to protect voting rights. And I I leave it to um, everyone in in this room as well as the rest of Congress to protect voting rights so that we can be a real democracy.
2: That is such an important point that she made and I haven't heard anyone talk about it in this manner. I don't believe it's acceptable to strip women of their right to make decisions about their own bodies Even if we had a functioning democracy, I don't believe in this prospect or this concept, rather, of states rightsing away all of our civil rights and civil liberties. That being said, we don't even have a functioning democracy. The states where they're outlawing abortion are also the same states that impose harsh restrictions on voting. And as Cory Booker pointed out, they have the highest rates of maternal mortality. So if these states actually were serious about giving the people a say. If these republicans were serious about protecting you know uh life wouldn't they try to do something to address the high rates of maternal mortality in their states well no because they are hypocrites and they don't care this is all about controlling women they don't care about bodily autonomy pro-lifers supposed pro-lifers really forced birthers but you know these pro-lifers they never suggest that we should uh be forced to donate blood be forced to donate organs, even when you're dead and you're no longer using your body. They don't mandate that you give those organs to people to save lives. You have to at the DMV say, I want to become an organ donor. So if we truly valued life, wouldn't there be these other steps that they take? I mean, it's it's a joke, and honestly, I'm to the point where I don't even want to engage with this pro-life argument because they are demonstrably anti-life, because when you outlaw abortion, that is a pro-death position. You're subjecting women to unsafe and illegal abortions that could threaten their lives. And that's what Professor Bridges was pointing out here. Now, in a different portion, um... She was asked by John Cornyn a question and he was very clearly trying to do this gotcha game with her. But as you're going to see, she doesn't take the bait. She doesn't play along with his semantic game. She doesn't play along with what he wants her to uh, respond to. Take a look.
9: Do you think that a, um, a baby that is not yet born has value?
7: I believe that a person with a capacity for pregnancy has value. They have intelligence. They have agency. They no, have. I'm dignity. talking about the baby. And I'm talking about the person with the capacity for and I'm, pregnancy. And
9: you're not answering the question. I'm asking. I'm, you I'm think answering, that a, I'm answering
7: a more interesting question Do you think
9: that the baby that is not yet born, let's say the day before this mother delivers, do you think that baby has value?
7: I think that the person with the capacity for pregnancy has value and they, have the, they should have the ability to control what happens to their lives. Well,
9: and, and i just note you refuse to answer the question.
2: That's how it's done, folks. That is how it's done. You don't have to play their games. You don't have to answer their bogus lines of questioning because these are people who are not serious. They're not living in reality. When conservatives uh, visualize women having abortions, they visualize a woman that's like eight eight months pregnant. Who just on a whim decides to go get an abortion but if you actually look at data for abortions by gestational age the overwhelming majority of abortions occur within the first 10 to 12 weeks of pregnancy so we're not talking about babies we're talking about zygotes we're talking about clumps of cells so if someone is eight months pregnant they want that baby they're not just going to flippantly have an abortion because they had a change of heart right abortions are necessary because if you have an abortion at that point in the pregnancy well then that means either the life of the pregnant person is at risk the fetus is non-viable or they had a miscarriage and an abortion is needed to remove said dead fetus so you know republicans they have to lie and obfuscate because they don't actually have an argument they have to try to cultivate sympathy illogically so in order to control women in order to control people and what they do with their own bodies And it's unacceptable. Now, one more clip that I want to play for you features Kiara answering a question from Chris Coons about what other rights could be stripped away. Now, this isn't necessarily surprising, but because she is a law professor, I think that her expertise here is necessary. And this is a warning. More rights are going to be stripped away because of the rationale that the Supreme Court used to overturn Roe v Wade. Let's watch.
14: What other fundamental rights might reasonably be imagined to be at risk?
7: Right. So looking to the nation's history, um, whether that, you know, date is 1787 when the Constitution was ratified, 1789 when the Bill of Rights was ratified, um, or 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, is to look at periods of the nation histories um, in which marginalized populations today were completely erased. Um, so I can talk about the LGBTQ community. Um, they were not contemplated by, by the framers, by those who ratified the Constitution? Their ability to live lives that are have dignity, um, their ability to love who they who they love and to marry who they marry, um, that just wasn't contemplated contemplated by those folks who ratified the Constitution. Um, people of color, immigrant um, people, uh, people with disabilities, uh, people with the capacity for pregnancy, right? All of those groups were not simply um, thought of, and their interests were not. Um, considered um, during that moment in the nation's history. So I can tell you the litany of cases that we ought to be wary about being reversed. Obergefell versus Hodges, Lawrence versus Texas, um, Loving versus Virginia, Skinner versus Oklahoma.
14: Professor, what's the common thread across all those cases? Some folks who are watching may not know as much as right. you do about the specifics of what kinds of freedoms are protected by We're that We're talking about
7: the, the court framed um, these these cases. The link that links them is this using the liberty term of the due process clause to recognize that people need the capacity to make decisions about their, their personal lives, about whether they create a family, about how they raise their family, um, about decisions regarding love and sex and marriage, and, and so to pull Full row out of that thread of cases that have all recognized um, the, the rights to privacy and liberty interests um, is to cre- create um, an, a, a chaos and create uncertainty with regard to the cases that came after, and that's Lawrence versus Texas protecting same-sex contact, mm-hmm. um, same-sex marriage, as well as the cases that came before.
14: Thank you, Professor. That's an insightful comment on how much else is at risk here and why this impacts um, fundamental rights that we've, many of us, millions of us, come to rely on to make decisions about our own life, about our families, about who we love, how we love, um, and when and how we um, choose to have children.
2: Yes, Senator Coons, isn't it frightening? I mean, it's almost like your party should take extreme action to reign in this rogue Supreme Court before they strip us of more civil rights and civil liberties. But really, he's not the focus, Chiara is the focus, and everything that she said there it's what we've been hearing from legal experts. So she's just reinforcing what we already know. But I still think it's important to hear from experts. They're saying, look, all of these civil rights and civil liberties that were won through the Supreme Court because of the due process clause, they are in danger. So this is a warning sign to Democrats, to people in power. If you want to stop this Supreme Court, who's gone rogue, from taking away more rights, you can't just sit here and complain when it happens. You actually have to take action. You have to pack the Supreme Court, institute judicial ethics that would lead to impeachment of the Supreme Court justices who lied to get confirmed, of these Supreme Court justices like Clarence Thomas who wouldn't recuse himself in a case related to January 6th, which implicates his wife, Ginny Thomas. You could pack the Supreme Court. You can't just sit here and let them take rights away from us. And if you're Joe Biden, warn us that gay marriage is next. Warn us that they're going to do more harm to us. If you have power, you have to act, you have to wield that power. So that's all that I have. I, I think that Kiara Bridges is an amazing person. And to see her shut down all of these senators, put them to shame, was really uh, satisfying to watch. So, um, yeah, shout out to Kiara Bridges. I absolutely love what she's saying. She is um, a treasure. So last week, we learned about reports of a potential deal between President Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell whereby uh, Joe Biden would nominate an anti-abortion judge to a federal lifetime appointment in exchange for Mitch McConnell simply agreeing to um, not slow down some of his other federal judicial appointments. Pretty bad deal. Now. This was just a report, nothing was set in stone, but there was some pushback from Democratic Party loyalists who refused to believe that Biden would be capable of this because there wasn't even a vacancy. Now, the vacancy was announced a day after this story had broke, but we've heard nothing since this story has been published, except today HuffPost released a story where uh, we learned that the Biden administration, even though there's been a lot of pushback, is still considering nominating said anti-abortion judge. Jennifer Bendery explains, President Joe Biden is not backing off plans to nominate an anti-abortion attorney to a lifetime federal judgeship in Kentucky despite strong opposition from Democrats and reproductive rights groups, according to a source recently briefed on the White House's plans. White House officials have refused to talk about Chad Meredith ever since the Louisville Courier-Journal reported late last month that he is the president's pick for a soon-to-be-vacant U.S. district court seat in eastern Kentucky. The newspaper even provided copies of June 23rd emails from the White House to Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir confirming Biden's plans to nominate Meredith, a member of the Conservative Federalist Society who has fought abortion rights. The White House initially told Bashir that Meredith would be nominated the next day on June 24th, but that turned out to be the day the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and the nomination didn't happen. Now it's just crickets. Well, at least he was kind enough to wait to nominate Chad Meredith because, I mean, doing it on the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned would be a little bit too tacky. So, you know, he's he's giving us a little bit of time. I just, I don't even know how to respond to this story. Let me just let you all know that this is not happening in a vacuum. We have to further contextualize this environment in the White House in order to really grasp how absurd this is. This comes at a time, this potential nomination comes at a time when 71% of Americans do not want Biden to seek a second term, including a majority of Democrats. His approval rating has dipped again, and his own base is harshly criticizing him because his response following the reversal of Roe v. Wade has been terrible. In fact, it seems as if He was unprepared, even if we had the leaked draft telling us that the Supreme Court was going to do the unthinkable, really the unthinkable to people who didn't know any better. But this was pretty obvious because they were broadcasting this for a very long time. But either way, after Biden has been met with resistance from his own party because he has been very feckless following the reversal of Roe v. Wade, he's still choosing to spit in the eyes of activists and nominating this force birther anyway. Now look, this is not a foregone conclusion. He still can reverse this and not go forward with this, but just the uh, fact that he's still moving forward with this, even following backlash, it just shows that he doesn't care. He's not just complicit with the forced birthers. He's assisting them in their effort to strip all women in the United States of reproductive rights. More from HuffPost. Biden is facing fire from his own party and allies. Bashir called such a nomination indefensible, and Representative John Yarmouth said, The last thing we need is another extremist on the bench. Eight national abortion rights groups issued a rare joint statement calling Meredith unacceptable at any time, but especially on the heels of six Supreme Court justices taking away a fundamental right from millions of people. Late Monday, Senator Tim Kaine similarly raised concerns about the prospect of Biden appointing Meredith to a lifetime federal court seat. Quote, I do not think this is the kind of person that a Democratic majority should put on the bench, Kane told HuffPost. It might have seemed like the White House has been backing off of Meredith's potential nomination, given its silence in response to the Democratic outcry. But behind the scenes, the White House is apparently signaling that it still plans to move forward with his nomination. This is absurd. They're defending it, the source briefed last week on the White House's plan, told HuffPost, after requesting anonymity in order to speak freely about private conversations. So I've got to say, if Tim Kaine, historically an anti-abortion conservative Democrat, thinks that Biden is going too far in assisting forced Brothers, that goes to show you how out of step he is with the party. And this individual said that activists, pro-choice activists, were the ones who were out of step with the Democratic Party. No, Biden, you're the one who's out of step with the Democratic Party, because as much as the Democratic Party is fighting each other, you have centrists fighting with the left, We're all in lockstep on this particular issue. When you have your entire base unified on this one issue and you still can't pull it together to galvanize them with a strong, decisive response, you failed as a president. And yet this man wants to run for a second term. Absolutely ridiculous. Now, how is he choosing to make this announcement knowing that it's super controversial? Well, what he's planning on doing is introducing Meredith, along with other judges, just do a bulk package deal with some justices that the left would approve of so that way you kind of sneak them through i just i just i can't get over it it's it's not like incompetence isn't the right word for this it's not even him hating his own base there really needs to be a new word to describe the way that biden is governing i mean there's a ton of adjectives that you can use but really i feel like this is almost unprecedented where a president is spitting in the eyes of his own base at a time when his approval rating is in the tank, when a majority of his base doesn't want him to seek re-election, you'd think that he'd be kissing their asses. Any president who wants to be re-elected would do that, but Biden is doing the opposite of what is logical. I mean, it flies in the face of common sense. Any political actor with an interest in a higher approval rating and re-election would be doing the opposite of what he's doing, but he's assisting forced Brothers. I just... I don't know how to how to even characterize this moment. It's it's too absurd to describe what's happening in the moment. We have to, like, digest it for a couple of decades and then look back and then try to figure out what the fuck was going on in America. But maybe, you know, the vice president is going to have a little bit more clarity on this issue.
8: I think that, to be very honest with you, I, I do believe that we should have rightly believed, but we certainly believe that certain issues are just settled. Certain issues are just settled.
2: Clearly we're not.
8: No, that's right. And that's why I do believe that we are living, sadly, in um, real unsettled times.
2: (laughs) Uh, uh, I I can't. I can't. I can't do it. These are our fighters, folks. These are our fighters. Kamala Harris and Joseph Robinette Biden. We are... Truly, genuinely doomed as a country. So by now, I'm sure that most of you have heard that billionaire Elon Musk is trying to back out of his contract to purchase Twitter. Now, in the event he's successful, he still may be on the hook for a billion dollars. Either way, I don't necessarily care too much about this story. If I had to choose, my preference would be that Elon Musk did not buy Twitter because I have no confidence that he would run it in. A competent manner but either way i don't really care that much about twitter so it's not that big of a deal to me but people are reacting to the story and conservatives really care about this because they believe that elon musk cares about free speech when demonstrably that's not true but trump in particular had an interest in elon musk buying twitter because elon musk had signaled that in the event he successfully purchased twitter he would unban donald trump but now that's seemingly off the table. So Donald Trump, like all of us, reacted to the news and he decided to take a shot at Elon Musk as well. Or should I say, Leon's.
11: Leon's, I tell you what, Elon, Elon is not gonna buy Twitter. Where did you hear that before? From me, from a fake account. She says fake, A lot of them. Nah, he's got himself a mess. You know, he said the other day, oh, I've never voted for a Republican. I said, I didn't know that. He told me he voted for me. (laughs) So he's another bullshit artist, but he's not going to be buying it. He's not going to be buying it. Although he might later. Who the hell knows what's going to happen? He's got a pretty rotten contract. I looked at his contract, not a good contract, but he said, sign up for truth.
2: We We love the truth. So he called Elon Musk, i.e., Leons, a bullshit artist, and claimed that he told Trump that he voted for him, even if Elon Musk recently stated that he never voted for a Republican before. Now, interestingly enough, Leons decided to respond with some insults of his own. He claims he never told Donald Trump that he voted for him and he goes on to make more tweets about Trump saying, I don't hate the man, but it's time for Trump to hang up his hat and sail into the sunset. Dem should also call off the attack. Don't make it so Trump's only way to survive is to regain the presidency. Um, I say no to that because the president is not above the law, but that's a different story for a different day. He also claims that Trump is just too much drama and adds, do we really want a bull in a china shop situation every single day? Also I think the legal maximum age for start of presidential term should be 69. LOL. Nice one, Elon. He adds, Trump would be 82 at end of term, which is too old to be chief executive of anything, let alone the president of the United States of America. If DeSantis runs against Biden in 2024, then DeSantis will easily win. He doesn't even need to campaign. Now, I'm not one to agree with Leon's on anything, but I do think that he's correct to assume that in the event DeSantis were to run against Joe Biden, he'd have an easier time of beating him than Donald Trump. So Elon Musk is using kid gloves to insult Donald Trump, right? But by stating that DeSantis is his preferred fascist, he is pushing Donald Trump's buttons, make no mistake about it, because Trump currently views DeSantis as his biggest rival in 2024. And DeSantis has not shown enough deference to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump has been noticing. So DeSantis is taking money from Trump's donors. He's also holding meetings with Trump's donors, as Politico reports. And because DeSantis is refusing to kiss Trump's ring, there are reports that Trump is literally considering announcing a presidential run again in front of Desantis's house, I kid you not. So Donald Trump is truly the king of petty, and let's be clear, I don't want him to run again, but in the event he were to run, would I prefer that he make that announcement in front of Desantis's house? Yes, I think that would be amazing to watch. Um, So, look, as Cameron Kasky put it on Twitter, love it when the girls are fighting. Now Trump needs to go after DeSantis to confuse their shit-brained stands. Trump versus DeSantis would rule and help the Republican Party be as scrambled and disjointed as the Democratic Party right now. Level the playing field. Exactly. I love to see them fight. I hope that Elon Musk and Donald Trump continue to exchange uh, insults. I hope that this escalates into a feud between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. There's already been kind of a cold war between Trump and DeSantis, but I hope that this Elon Musk or Leon's feud with Donald Trump escalates and kind of fans the flames of this fight between Trump and DeSantis. It is really nice to see these signs that the GOP base conservatives in general are fracturing, because. When you see the rise of fascism, any out that you can find is cause for optimism. Any splintering that you can see is cause for celebration. And we need to make sure that we foster the development of this feud in any way, shape, or form. So if I have to temporarily jump on Team Lions in order to root against Donald Trump and root for his downfall— then I'm all for it. I'm down. So uh, I think that they should continue to argue. Uh, I anxiously await Donald Trump's response. If Trump doesn't respond to Elon, then this is kind of proof that he's a cuck, right? So we should probably issue a statement on Truth Social immediately and call out Elon Musk for um, a variety of reasons. I I mean, there's no shortage of reasons to insult Elon Musk, but the same is true for Donald Trump. So, you know, this feud could go on for years, potentially. I I just hope that it continues to... um, fester. I'd love to see it. Let them fight. Mr.
3: President, what's your message to Democrats who don't want you to run again? They want me to run. Two thirds say they don't. Read the polls. Read the polls, Jack. You guys are all the same. That poll showed that 92% of Democrats, if I ran, would vote for me. A
2: majority of Democrats
3: say they don't want you to run again in 2024, 92 percent said if I did, they'd vote for it.
2: That infuriating clip was of President Joseph Biden uh, refusing to acknowledge the reality that we hate him. Democratic Party voters don't want him to run in 2024. Now. It's also an admission that he does read at least some polls. So I wonder if he's seen any of these polls. 83% of Democrats want Biden to cancel student debt, but yet he has not done that. 60% of Americans want marijuana legalized for recreational reasons. This includes 70% of 18 to 29 year olds who he's currently struggling to win back. Maybe he should use his pen to issue some executive orders and at least reschedule marijuana so it's not schedule one. But I suspect that he's going to just pretend as if he hasn't seen those polls or the other polls that show how popular Medicare for all is and the plethora of other policies that would help improve his numbers. Now, he cites the 92 percent of Democrats who would vote for him if the election were held today. But by repeating that statistic, he's talking over the reporter and this was purposeful, right? But he's also misrepresenting that particular statistic, because as Newsweek explains, it's true that 92 percent of Democrats surveyed said they would vote for Biden in an election. However, the respondents were asked on the condition that the election were held today and the options were between Joe Biden, Donald Trump, another candidate or not going to vote slash wouldn't vote if those are the choices. In other words, if the election were held today and the options were Donald Trump or Joe Biden, they would begrudgingly vote for you because they don't want Donald Trump to win again. But the point that you're missing, Biden, is that they don't want you to be the only option. Sure, a lot of people would agree to something if you put a gun to their head, but they don't want this to be the option. They want someone else. And that's what he refuses to acknowledge, but he knows. That he's very unpopular. And so he's not going to acknowledge that New York Times Siena College poll, but that poll speaks to a huge huge red flag that him and other establishment Democrats are refusing to acknowledge, that their failures to deliver, their unpopularity is going to come back and bite them in the ass. Now, let's go to that Siena College poll. President Biden is facing an alarming level of doubt from inside his own party, with 64% of Democratic voters saying they would prefer a new standard bearer in the 2024 presidential campaign, according to a New York Times Siena College poll, as voters nationwide have soured on his leadership, giving him a meager 33% percent job approval rating. The backlash against Mr. Biden and desire to move in a new direction were particularly acute among younger voters. In the survey, 94 percent of Democrats under the age of 30 said they would prefer a different presidential nominee. So to keep repeating that 92 percent of Democrats said that they would vote for you again misses the fucking point the point is that they don't want you to be the option. They don't want to be forced to begrudgingly vote for you again. That's what the entire base is saying, especially young people. But Biden doesn't want to hear it. He's plugging his ears and he's saying, nope, 92% would vote for me again. In other words, I don't give a fuck what they want. I'm putting my ego above my own base and I'm choosing to force them to vote for me again because I know how much they don't want a fascist back in the White House. So they're going to vote for me like good little stooges and shut the fuck up about it because 92 percent are already saying they'd come out and vote for me. Now, the problem is that things can change if Trump is not the nominee. Well, perhaps Biden is more vulnerable to a Ron DeSantis or somebody else or with time, more and more voters could become so disillusioned that they don't even show up, they stay home. So to cite that one poll and use that as your saving grace, not only is it just it's insufficient, but it's embarrassing that you cite that poll. Oh, well, of course, most Democrats would vote for me if I fucking made them and they were forced to because they had no other choice. Is that really the poll that you want to cite? And look, it's not like we're unreasonable. It's not like we're unreasonable. I would support a second Biden run if he actually did something. Hell, if he pretended to fight, even gave me a little bit of political theater, that might motivate me more. But we don't even get political theater. We just saw Roe v. Wade be overturned, right? And he had ample opportunity to take action, but he bungled the response. And it's not just that he's not doing enough. It's not just that he's complicit with the GOP's uh restrictions on reproductive rights, but he's helping them. He wants to nominate Chad Meredith in Kentucky. This is an anti-abortion attorney and he wants to give this individual a permanent position on our federal judiciary i mean do you understand why people are dissatisfied biden this is the problem with american politics this is a problem with the two-party system it's you're always voting for the lesser of two evils and that never changes and with time you know both options become more and more evil But then what do you do? Do you not vote and allow the fascists to win? Because that certainly isn't going to help the country. We saw the way that Donald Trump shifted the Overton window drastically to the right in America. So what do you do? It's it's like we're stuck in this country and the system is incapable of churning out candidates that the American people want. On one hand, you see all these polls where the American people want all these policies, but yet they don't deliver in Congress. So there's this misalignment with what the American people want and what members of Congress want. There's this misalignment with what the Democratic Party's base wants and what the establishment is willing to give them. And this is why the situation in the United States is deteriorating, because if you have one half of the political electorate, the Democratic Party's base, disillusioned and demobilized, and the only thing that motivates them to vote is the fear of fascism, well, then that's not going to create a very stable political climate. If you have a party who claims that they want to change the material conditions in this country for people but never actually deliver, well, then people will continue to be desperate and they will remain susceptible to radicalization. They will remain susceptible to another far-right demagogue that will come along and say, listen, I know that you're hurting. Here's a solution for you. It's immigrants. It's queer people. Rather than, you know trying to change these circumstances. It's just there's so much that the Democratic Party can do if they cared. But I think that they've made it abundantly clear that they don't care about their own base. They couldn't care less about their own base. It's always shut the fuck up, get in line, accept what we give you. Otherwise, you get a fascist. This is an abusive relationship. And what Biden is saying there, totally unacceptable. If the overwhelming majority of your party does not want you to run again, including 94% of young people who you need to win, that should be the sign that you've got to hang it up, sail off into the sunset, fuck off. You don't have to go home, but you've got to get the hell out of here, Biden, because we don't want you. So are you really telling us that you're going to put your ego above what the American people want? The answer is yes. He refuses to hear anything that might hurt his ego. So here we are. You have the entire Democratic Party base crying out for Biden to go away and he refuses. So that's why we're in this situation. This is why, you know, fascism is on the rise in the United States of America. Because if you don't have a good option, you're always forced to choose between a right winger or a fascist, then things just continue to deteriorate. If you never have an alternative and the status quo never changes, then the system itself becomes stagnant and it eventually dies. I want to talk about a Ben Shapiro video, and this is going viral on Twitter because it is truly... Disgusting, but as gross and reprehensible as what Ben Shapiro is going to say in this clip that you're about to see, honestly, it's a relief to know that at most he's just ambivalent about queer deaths because there are two types of conservative bigots in this country. There are the ones who don't really care about LGBTQ plus suicide rates, hence why when we cite statistics about suicidal ideation among LGBTQ plus youth, they just don't really feel compelled to change their opinion. It doesn't resonate. But there are others who genuinely want queer people to die. Now, if you don't believe that there are people in that latter category where they genuinely want queer people to kill themselves, Well, uh, just ask a queer person and they have plenty of anecdotes to share with you. But also, let me point out this tweet from Alejandra Caraballo who writes, I want everyone to see what they did to a LGBTQ plus senior housing project in Boston. This is the hate we're dealing with whipped up by right-wing influencers and politicians for profit and political gain. This is only getting worse. And as you can see, the message is very clear. They want F-slurs to die and not only that, they want them to die slow and painful deaths. And they believe that this is justified because queers are supposedly corrupting all of society so at least ben shapiro isn't in that category at least seemingly you can argue that indirectly you know his rhetoric and what he pushes the policies that he pushes lead to queer deaths but what he's going to vocalize here really is that yeah even if you know hate against trans people leads to them wanting to commit suicide more often
5: oh well And this is always the threat that the left likes to bring and it's it starts in academia, it bleeds all the way down. The idea is that if you make an argument based in fact that you're going to cause somebody else to commit suicide. Now in American law and in law, typically the idea that you can cause someone else to commit suicide is pretty dicey territory generally. And you actually have some pretty specific evidence saying that somebody is telling somebody to commit suicide in order to even attempt to hold them accountable. For their commission of suicide, because there's an intervening actor, namely the person who's committing the suicide. The generalized point the left tries to make is that if you say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, a bunch of people who believe they are members of the opposite sex will be so despondent about the fact that biological reality exists and that you are saying it. Not even that it exists, that you're saying it, that they're going to go commit suicide. There's only one problem with this line of argument. It's complete nonsense. There's no statistical evidence to suggest that the wildly disparate suicidal ideation rate among LGBT people suddenly corrects itself. To meet the cis norm, meaning people who know what sex they are, and it is their biological sex, the heterosexual norm, the, the, the suicide rates, the suicidal ideation rates do not suddenly become equal if you live in an area that is highly tolerant of LGBT. They're still wildly disproportionate, which suggests that there are a bunch of other intervening factors, including serious comorbidities with regard to anxiety and depression that attend upon LGBT identity. We're not allowed to talk about any of that. The idea is supposed to be that it's because Josh Howley is mean that trans kids are now suicidal. That is not true. There's no evidence to that idea. And by the way, even were that true, it would not mean that it is now Josh Howley's job to lie. Truth matters in a society. If some people are unable to handle truth and this causes them to be more mentally ill or more suicidal, that is not the fault of the truth. We're gonna have to find some different solutions. The solution is not society wide falsehoods that is infuriating. But to be fair
2: to Ben Shapiro, he did say uh, that we should find other solutions, suggesting that he does in some way, shape or form want to address trans suicide rates. Now, he's likely just placating people. So, you know, we don't view him as that big of a piece of shit. But okay, I'll take him at his word there. Right. But what he's saying here is callous and it's also counterfactual. See. I have facts and data and peer-reviewed studies on my side, whereas Ben Shapiro's conjecture is based off of his feelings. So he says here, there's no statistical evidence to suggest that the wildly disparate suicidal ideation rate among LGBT people suddenly corrects itself to meet the cis norm. If you live in an area that is highly tolerant of LGBT, they're still wildly disproportionate. Now, what he's doing here is he's just making that up because environmental factors do indeed change the suicidal ideation rate among trans youth and really it's two things if i could simplify all of this that will decrease the rate of suicidal ideation it's freedom And its environment now the first question is why do lgbtq plus people have a higher rate of suicidal ideation compared to their cis peers now as madeline carlisle of time explains the risk is due in part to experiences with gender dysphoria as well as the way that they are treated in society based on their identity says dr amy green the vice president of research at the trevor project who co-authored the study Now, the study that they're referencing is a peer reviewed study published in 2021 in the Journal of Adolescent Health, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to go to a meta analysis conducted by the Trevor Project where they lay out risk factors for trans and LGBTQ plus youth more broadly. One risk factor includes minority stress. This includes anti-LGBTQ messaging, which we see from shows like The Daily Wire, LGBTQ-based physical harm, discrimination, housing instability, and change attempts by parents. This means that if a child comes out as trans and their family refuses to accept them and they force them to live as a gender that they don't identify with, well, that leads to increased suicidal ideation. A third of queer youth experience parental rejection. Thirty 76% Six percent report physical threats or harm. 52% of LGBTQ middle schoolers and high schoolers are bullied. Discrimination is another factor. 73% of LGBTQ youth experience discrimination at least once in their lives. Trans and non-binary youth who experience discrimination are twice as likely to attempt suicide. Now, there are other risk factors, but the point is that we know what the causal mechanisms are right? We're not ignorant any longer. The studies have been conducted. They're peer-reviewed. The data is out there. We know what leads to an increased rate of suicidality among LGBTQ plus youth. Environmental factors do matter. And conversely, since we know what causes increased rate of suicidality among LGBTQ plus youth, we also know what reduces the rate of suicidality among LGBTQ plus youth. Among the plethora of key protective factors in the Trevor Project's meta-analysis include having at least one accepting adult, which can reduce the rate of suicide attempts among LGBTQ young people by 40%. A 2021 peer-reviewed study by the Trevor Project's researchers published in Transgender Health found that transgender and non-binary youth who reported gender identity acceptance from adults and peers had significantly lower odds of attempting suicide in the past year. LGBTQ youth who felt high social support from their family reported attempting suicide at less than half the rate of those who felt low or moderate social support. LGBTQ youth who live in a community that is accepting of LGBTQ people reported much lower rates of attempting suicide than those who do not. And it's not just environmental factors that have to be considered. If we give trans people the freedom keyword freedom to live their lives in the way that they want to, that also is incredibly beneficial. A study in the Journal of Adolescent Health examines data collected in a Trevor Project survey of over 34,000 LGBTQ youth between the ages of 13 and 24 across the U.S. from October to December of 2020. Of the respondents, 12,000 identified as transgender or non-binary. The study found that young people receiving gender and hormone therapy reported a lower likelihood of experiencing depression and suicidal ideation compared to young people who wanted the treatment but were not able to access it. Notably, the study found that among young trans and non-binary people under 18, receiving gender and hormone therapy was associated with nearly 40% lower odds of having had a suicide attempt in the past year. So when Ben Shapiro says, well, you know, we have to find out what these factors are that's leading to an increased rate of suicidality among LGBTQ plus youth, we've already found it. All we have to do is treat trans people with respect and give them freedom and that will decrease the rate of suicidality. But Ben Shapiro refuses to accept that because, you know, feelings over facts if you're Ben Shapiro and he's not willing to look at the data. Now, he also says here the idea is supposed to be that it is because Josh Hawley, referring to a viral video between Josh Hawley and Kara Bridges, a law professor, um, that if Josh Hawley is mean, trans kids are going to become suicidal. In other words, if they see transphobia, it will make them suicidal. Ben Shapiro contends, this is not true. He says, there's no evidence to that idea. That's just completely wrong. Uh, And by the way, even if that were true, it would not mean that it is Josh Hawley's job to lie. Truth matters in a society. If some people are unable to handle truth and this causes them to be more mentally ill or more suicidal, that is not the fault of the truth. We're going to have to find some different solutions. The solution is not society-wide falsehoods. When it comes to society-wide delusions, well, our side, the trans-affirming side, we actually have data and statistics and science to back up what we're saying. But uh, when it comes to religion, there's absolutely no scientific evidence to confirm that any god from any religion exists. None whatsoever. But yet, we afford religious people the freedom and respect that transphobes like Ben Shapiro don't allow trans people to have. All that we're asking, to make it very simple, is to respect trans people, and let them have the freedom to live their lives in the way that they want to. And Ben Shapiro says, no. But yet, we're expected to give them respect for their society-wide delusions of religion and pretend as if there's evidence for a God that doesn't exist. I mean, look, we can have a disagreement. This is part of living in a pluralistic society. I'm an anti-theist. I hate religion. But I would always defend your right, your freedom to be religious. But Ben Shapiro is saying, I'm not going to afford you that same luxury. I don't believe that trans people should have the freedom to live their lives in the way that they want to. I think that we should ban parents or ban gender-affirming care for youth and perhaps investigate trans-affirming parents who seek out gender-affirming care that's medically necessary for their children and, you know, treat them like they're child abusers. That's what Ben Shapiro is, in essence, saying here. He's also saying, I'm not even going to respect them. So if you tell me that your name is this, I'm going to dead name you. If you tell me that these are your preferred pronouns, I'm not going to use them. So I'm not going to respect you. I'm not even going to offer you freedom, but you better damn well give me freedom for my religion. I mean, this is the difference between conservatives and the left. We have respect. We're pro freedom. We have data and scientific research, peer reviewed studies on our side. Whereas people like Ben Shapiro have hate and they refuse to allow people they disagree with the luxury to live their lives in the way that they want to. Again, I just want to make this very, very clear, not to sound like a broken record. Trans and non-binary people are asking for a very, very small thing. Just respect them and give them the freedom to live their lives. If they tell you that their preferred pronouns are she, her, he, him, they, them, just respect it. You know, sometimes you're going to make a mistake and slip up. That's fine. Correct yourself. As long as you're not going out of your way to purposefully misgender them or deadname them them and be an asshole, most people will be understanding. They're just asking for you to try to be respectful, support their freedom to live their lives. But somebody who Ben Shapiro hired on his network, Jordan Peterson, doesn't even know if trans adults should be given the freedom to live their lives as the gender That they want and these are people who talk about freedom of speech gender expression is a form of freedom of speech you telling me that you know just because somebody is born a certain way they're not allowed to wear dresses and paint their nails and have longer hair i mean this is the essence of freedom to deny someone gender expression is to deny them their freedom of speech their freedom in general it's to deny their humanity they refuse to even treat other people with respect refuse to give them the freedom that they expect for things that we disagree with. You see, if I support trans people, according to Ben Shapiro, we're just buying into their delusions. But you better support my fucking sky fairy and my beliefs there and give me the freedom to support that. I mean, you don't see leftists trying to ban fucking religions. That would be absurd. I would fight against that. But yet they're trying to ban gender affirming care for trans youth, ban gender affirming care for uh, adults in some instances, if you're Matt Walsh or Jordan Peterson, two people on the Daily Wire network. So it's insane. Republicans are authoritarian, authoritarian, People like Ben Shapiro are authoritarian and believe them when they tell you that they don't support freedom. This is Ben Shapiro saying, I don't support freedom. I don't even support basic respect for fellow Americans. That really is embarrassing. He should feel bad about that, but he doesn't because he's hateful. He's ignorant. So he thinks that if there are people who are inferior to him in society, then it's justified to treat them with no respect, no humanity, not recognize their basic dignity. Well, I disagree, and this is why we can never come to an agreement there's going to be no reconciliation we have to defeat you because i don't want to live in a world where people are denied the freedom where we don't even treat trans people with basic respect and human dignity Fuck that i'm going to fight you at every step of the way so long as you are going to impose your theocratic beliefs on everyone else So last week on the show, we talked about a plethora of stories that demonstrate how harmful the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade has already been for women and girls in the United States. And one of those stories is this story about a 10-year-old child in Ohio who was denied an abortion and forced to travel to Indiana in order to terminate her pregnancy. Now, after that story broke, for whatever reason, mainstream media pundits and fact-checkers decided to try to poke holes in the story when there was nothing particularly doubtful about the story. I mean, this is a relatively common story. I think the only surprise was how quickly this type of story came out following the reversal of Roe v. Wade, but these things are an inevitability in a post roe world. But regardless, fact-checkers were incredibly, incredibly disingenuous about this story. So let's look at some headlines shared by journalist Ken Klippenstein. Quote, not a whisper of evidence to show 10-year-old Ohio rape victim got abortion in Indiana. Another one, an abortion story too good to confirm. This was published by the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. Fox News writes, Biden cited story of 10-year-old Ohio rape victim needing abortion still not verified by fact-checkers. Snopes, Washington Post, on Able to verify viral story, Governor Christy Nome writes a week ago. Dana Bash on CNN tried to trap me with a story about a ten-year-old girl who got an abortion. I pointed out that nobody was asking about the pervert who raped that child. Now it looks like the story was fake to begin with—literal fake news from the liberal media. Now there's more, but let's just pause for a moment. I'm not a journalist, but since when was being unable to verify a story or confirm every single detail tantamount to that story just being completely bogus? In what way does it mean that if you can't verify details of the story as a fact checker, it's just that proves it's fake? I don't know how they came to this conclusion, but odds are there were a lot of pundits and media figures that wanted to come to this conclusion because they wanted to make it seem as if liberals were being too hysterical over the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Now let's look at a, a little short compilation from Fox News about the way that they covered this.
15: So primetime decided to investigate this alleged child rape. But we quickly found out that authorities in Ohio haven't even begun a criminal investigation into the rape. This doesn't make any sense
8: to the point of the Indianapolis Star, Washington Post, there's no indication that the newspaper made other attempts to confirm her account. The story's lead reporter, you made this point during break. Sherry Rudavsky did not respond to a query asking whether additional sourcing was obtained. And the single source said to the Washington Post, thank you for reaching out. I'm sorry, but I don't have any information to share. So just
4: dark. Yeah, and that's against the backdrop of their code of ethics, which also includes we use confidential sources, sole sources as the sole basis for published information only as a last resort and under specific procedures that best serve the public's right to know. Well, that goes to what you were saying, where they have deemed that the public's right to know is folded in with their agenda. Take it from me, because my wheelhouse was criminal law as an attorney. There's no shortage of 10-year-old rape victims. There's there's victims from infants through the elderly, both genders. There is more than you can count. There are so many monsters out there. So for me, what I find so deeply offensive is that they had to make up a fake one. There's actually so many. There are countless real ones that I would love for them to use as advocacy for law and order for actually commitment to prosecutions, to finding the perpetrator. But the fact that this alleged situation was created, And that was to serve the public's right to know to further their position on abortion Mm -hmm. by a sort of sensationalist physician now that has now gone dark with zero acknowledgement of the perp and the victim and so much more components of this that real people have dedicated their careers and their dramatic efforts to on a daily basis, that they think we're that simple, that they've reduced us, oh, you're gonna eat this up, you're not gonna ask any questions and it's gonna be really good for your talking point. And then it gets amplified. It's horrifying. Americans know better than that. We're smarter than that, and we are more honorable than that.
16: So what does it tell us that politicians are lying about this? Can you imagine? And why did the Biden administration, speaking of lying, just repeat a story about a 10-year-old child who got pregnant and then got an abortion or was not allowed to get an abortion when it turns out that the story was not true? And by the way, when a 10-year-old gets pregnant, the first question is not, how do we get rid of the kid? The first question is, where's the rapist? Where's the rapist?
2: Yeah. So, um, as it turns out, the story was uh, proven to be completely uh, true. Yeah, it's true. So as the Columbia Dispatch reports, arrest made in rape of Ohio girl that led to Indiana abortion-drung international attention. Gershon Fuentes, 27, whose last known address was an apartment on Columbus's northwest side, was arrested Tuesday after police say he confessed to raping the child on at least two occasions. He's since been charged with rape, a felony of the first degree in Ohio. Columbus police were made aware of the girl's pregnancy through a referral by Franklin County Children's Services that was made by her mother on June 22nd detective jeffrey hoon testified wednesday morning at fuentes's arraignment on june 30th the girl underwent a medical abortion in indianapolis hoon said hoon also testified that dna from the clinic in indianapolis is being tested against samples from fuentes as well as the child's siblings to confirm contribution to the aborted fetus now again i understand that fact checkers like snopes and Glenn Kessler of The Washington Post, who I think it's a stretch to even call him a fact checker at this point. I understand if you're not able to verify details of the story, and that's because there's a child victim involved. So these details are sensitive. They're going to try to restrict these details from the public to protect that child. But I'm no journalist, right? But again, I've got to ask the question. Since when has being unable to independently verify details of a story implied that the story itself is completely bogus. How did we reach this conclusion collectively as a media establishment? I don't know. Um, Part of it is, you know, I think that pundits trying to both sides the situation and try to be fair to Republicans and make it seem as if what they just did or what they wanted isn't as bad as liberals and lefties are making it seem. Maybe that's part of it. But another part of it, I fear, is that this is an indication that the most horrific abortion stories that will inevitably come out in a post-Roe America are going to be viewed as false flags. Now, why? Because these stories are going to come out. Women will be harmed. Women will die because Roe versus Wade has been overturned. But why? We know it's going to happen. Well, they know that this hurts the cause for forced birthers. In Ireland, The country had a collective change of heart because of one story where a woman died because she was denied access to an abortion so in the united states if these stories begin to be published one after another of a woman with an ectopic pregnancy dying or a 10 year old rape victim getting denied an abortion that is going to collectively change the public consciousness even more and Conservatives know that they're already on thin ice. They know that a majority of Americans supported Roe v. Wade. So they know that what they did was incredibly extremist and unpopular. So if more and more stories begin to come up, then that will keep this on the public's collective consciousness and this will facilitate more protests, people getting outraged and lashing out at government for failing to protect women. So that's what I think maybe it is. But I. I mean, when it comes to conservatives and conservative media, everything that's inconvenient to their narrative is deemed a false flag or conspiracy theory. But I think that this is an indication that we have to be on the lookout for um, these fact checkers and uh, anyone who wants to help conservatives, they're going to be crying false flag at any abortion story. Now, of course, we should remain skeptical and be cautious and do our due diligence. But with regard to this particular story, there was nothing about it that raised any red flags in my head. And again, not a journalist, so I'm not an expert. These are supposed to be the experts. But there's nothing about this story that's particularly unbelievable. But yet, that didn't stop fact checkers from poking holes in it. As the Wall Wall Street Journal smugly put it, oh, it's an abortion story. That's just too good to be true. As if this sort of a story is so out of the norm in countries where abortions are denied. Jesus Christ. It just, if we're this early into a post-war America and media is already fucking up this bad? It goes to show you it's going to be a really bumpy road ahead if the media won't even do the bare minimum and just report facts and stop trying to poke holes in particular stories for purposes of serving the right wing's narrative. What is the point of this?
15: Caitlin Bernard, the abortion doctor who performed the operation in Indiana, has a legal requirement to report the abortion to both Child Services and the state's health department because a 10-year-old isn't able to give consent and is therefore a rape victim. And from what we can find out so far, this Indiana abortion doctor has covered this up. Failure to report is nothing new, though, for Dr. Bernard. According to reporting from PJ Media, she has a history of failing to report child abuse cases and our sources as trace mentioned are telling fox that dr bernard's employer indiana university health has already filed a hipaa violation against her so is a criminal charge next and will dr bernard lose her license
2: that was fox news host jesse waters inciting harassment against dr caitlin bernard who provided the 10 year old rape victim in ohio an abortion in the state of indiana now i'm not necessarily sure what her reason was for not reporting that but in a current climate where republicans are trying to prevent women from traveling to different states to obtain abortions then perhaps this doctor thought if i report this then perhaps that could subject this victim's family to prosecution or criminal charges so rather than doing that i'm just going to not do that i don't know what her thinking is but it's not a stretch to think that they would want to criminalize that doctor specifically for providing that rape victim with an abortion, considering, as Peter Sullivan of The Hill reports, GOP Senator James Langford on Thursday blocked a Democratic request to unanimously pass a bill seeking to protect interstate travel for abortion. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, joined by a string of Democratic senators, had sought consent to pass a bill that would prevent states from punishing women who travel to other states where abortion is legal to get the procedure. In other words, we have a Republican party that is saying we are going to impose travel restrictions on women and girls so they will be unable to seek out safe and legal abortions in state that still provide them. This is barbaric. It's draconian. And let's just be real. We don't need to dance around it. The outrage isn't that that doctor, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, acted improperly. The outrage is that she gave that 10 year old rape victim an abortion in the first place. They wanted that rape victim to have her rapist's baby. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear from some pro-lifers, individuals such as Jim Bob, the top lawyer for the National Right to Life, who says that the 10-year-old rape victim should have been forced to have her rapist's baby. Quote, she would have had the baby and as many women who have had babies as a result of rape, we would hope that she would understand the reason and ultimately the benefit of having the child. First of all, we're not talking about a woman. We're talking about a child who was the victim of rape, and they're saying here, they're admitting to everyone that they would force her to have her rapist's baby and hope that she would ultimately understand the benefits of having a child. We're talking about a little girl here. These are perverted, cruel, and barbaric monsters who are openly admitting that they think that 10-year-old rape victims should be forced to have their rapist's child. And you expect us to believe that the issue that they take with Dr. Caitlin Bernard is that she didn't properly report this, that she didn't uh, properly follow all of the protocols? No. They don't want even rape victims are children to have abortions. That's what this is about. That's how cruel these Republican monsters are. Now, it gets worse. As this Wall Street Journal reporter explains, the Texas Attorney General is filing a lawsuit to challenge the Biden administration's guidance to perform abortions when necessary to save the lives of mothers. So understand what that means if you are a woman who votes for Republicans. The Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton, is saying even if The abortion is needed to save your life we value the fetus's life over your life we prefer that you die so the fetus can one day be born they are psychotic they are barbaric and they're just saying the quiet part loud now you know they tried to hide the ball before and not really answer the question about whether or not they want to protect the life of the mother or whether or not they would allow victims of rape to have abortions. But now when a child is the victim of rape, well, they're out for blood. They want to get that doctor who provided that abortion care. Now, back to that case. So they're also arguing that Indiana should not have given this 10-year-old rape victim an abortion because in Ohio, it was still legal. But the problem is that there was legal gray area enough to warrant the doctor not feeling safe to give this abortion fearing prosecution. So that's why this little girl was forced to go to Indiana. Now, back to Jesse Waters' question about whether or not the doctor will be prosecuted or lose her license. It's possible. As Politico's Maya Ward reports, the Indiana doctor who provided crucial health care to a child victim of rape is now being investigated by Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita. And in the second part of that clip that we saw from Jesse Waters' show, this attorney general explains why he is investigating this doctor. Now, as he's going to make this case for an investigation, ask yourself this question. Is this an individual who seems to care at all about that 10-year-old rape victim, or is he just a partisan actor? Let's watch.
9: So what's going on, Todd? Jesse, thanks for having me on, but I shouldn't be here, right? I mean, first of all, uh, this is an illegal immigration issue because likely of Biden's lawlessness at the border and everything going on down there. That's why Indiana as a non-border state has actually filed several independent lawsuits on that. Then we have the rape, and then we have this uh, abortion activist acting as a doctor with a history of failing to report. So we're gathering the information, we're gathering the evidence as we speak, and we're going to fight this uh, to the end, uh, including looking at her licensure uh, if she failed to report. And in Indiana, it's a crime uh, for, uh, to not report, to intentionally not report.
15: So what kind of a crime is it to not report a child rape to state authorities? And, and then tell us why it's a crime not to report. Well,
9: of course, because it's, this is a child and there's a strong public interest in understanding, you know, if someone under the age of 16 or under the age of 18 or really any woman is, be, is having an abortion in our state. And then if a child's being sexually abused, of course. Uh, parents need to know, authorities need to know, public policy experts need to know. We all need to know as citizens in a free republic so we can stop this. This is a horrible, horrible scene caused man, caused by Marxists and socialists and those in the White House who, don't, who want lawlessness at the border. And then this girl was politicized politicized for the gain of killing more babies, right? That was the goal. And this abortion activist is out there front and center. Uh, the lamestream media, the fake news is right behind it. And fortunately in Indiana, uh, the paper of record is fake news. And and they were right there jumping in on all this, thinking that it was gonna be great for their abortionist movement when this girl has been uh, so brutalized.
15: It really is a tragedy. Thanks for coming on and please keep us posted on what's going on with this abortion doctrine, whether or not she's going to face any sort of scrutiny.
2: I'm not letting it go. Quote, I'm not letting it go, says this absolute Cretan, this monster, this barbarian. Absolutely sick. Republicans have lost their fucking minds. But to even say that might be a little bit too charitable because I don't think they were ever sane, ever living in reality to begin with. Now, let's be absolutely crystal clear here by Fox News showing Dr. Caitlin Bernard's face, broadcasting her name. This is stochastic terrorism. They are inciting harassment against her. And if you don't believe me, well, meet Dr. George Tiller. He was a doctor who provided abortions that became the target of Fox News in the Bill O'Reilly era. And after showing his face and name repeatedly, calling him Tiller the baby killer, well, a forced birther extremist murdered Dr. George Tiller. Now, even after he was murdered, Bill O'Reilly showed no remorse whatsoever and continued to lie about the services that Dr. Tiller provided. As you may know, some in the left-wing press are blaming me for
16: inciting the murder of late-term abortionist Dr. George Tiller. A domestic terrorist shot the doctor dead, and zealots say my reporting on Tiller motivated the man, even though there's absolutely no evidence of that. The accusers object to my using the term Tiller, the baby killer, which was the doctor's well-known nickname which is in context because the state of Kansas has produced compelling evidence that tillers sometimes terminated viable fetuses for trivial reasons and the process was brutal even Barbara Walters whom we respect cannot bring herself to acknowledge the truth
14: you know we are fond of Bill we argue with Bill we think Fine. but i think to use the word baby killer i, I wish that bill hadn't yeah, i wish he I could have he expressed his opinion said in a different way
16: that'll be fair to Miss Walters, we called her up and asked how she would describe Tiller. She told us she'd call him a late-term abortion doctor. But that doesn't tell the story, does it? We're talking about a man who destroyed late-term fetuses, who could live out of the womb for casual reasons. The truth often hurts, especially when an ideological media
2: tries to hide it. Not much has changed, right? Now we have Jesse Waters doing the same thing. Now, when he says that George Tiller was providing women with late-term abortions for casual reasons, he's lying. Yes, it was the case that Dr. Tiller would provide women with third-trimester abortions, but these were not for casual reasons. These were people who wanted to have children that mourned the loss of their child, but they learned that there was substantial fetal defects. These fetuses were missing parts of their brain and skulls, if they were able to survive, they would not have a very high quality of life. It would be a miserable existence. So these people went to George Tiller distraught and he would do what was necessary. He would carry out their choice and he would rub their backs. He would offer emotional services to walk them through it as they were grieving the loss of this fetus that they wanted to be one day their child. It wasn't something that he just flippantly did for them. They didn't just like change their mind and say, okay, you know what? We're we're in the third trimester, but I don't want it anymore. They wanted the baby, but he did what was necessary. I mean, would you say that doctors who pull the plug on patients on life support are killers? I mean, it's, it's a dirty, gruesome job, but somebody's got to do it, right? I don't have the stomach to do it. When they pulled the plug on my dad after they told us that, He wasn't going to come back. I couldn't be in the room. But yet, some nurse or doctor did what was necessary. So, Dr. Tiller was a healthcare provider for women who did something that was really difficult. He helped them. And he was murdered. And then still, after he was murdered, Bill O'Reilly showed no remorse whatsoever. Made it seem as if You know, that was justified because murdering him would save more lives. It was a utilitarian calculation, apparently. And so we're in the same situation today where Fox News is using the same playbook that got abortion doctors murdered, broadcasting their face and name, subjecting them to harassment and potentially violence. And we're talking about a doctor who performed an abortion on a 10-year-old rape victim. This is how barbaric the modern-day Republican Party and media apparatus for conservatives is. It is morally reprehensible, and if you are somebody who has oftentimes voted Republican, maybe you might want to rethink that considering how fucking barbaric they're openly being. Is this what you believe in? That 10-year-old rape victims should be forced to have their rapist's baby? that women who are going to die if they don't get an abortion should die because the life of the fetus is somehow more valuable than the mother? I'm not saying that the mother can't choose to die so that fetus can one day become a child. I'm saying that we give women the fucking choice, but these barbarians are saying, no, nope, no choice for the women. This is what we want. You got an egg-topic pregnancy, which has a zero percent chance of resulting in a viable fetus. Not acceptable life of the mother in danger. Too bad. The fetus comes first. 10-year-old rape victim? Well, I hope that maybe she could see the benefits of becoming a mother at the age of 10. They are sick, they are perverted barbarians, and we have to fight back by every means necessary. This means that the Biden administration should be putting abortion clinics on federal property, this means that however we can get abortion pills to women in red states we have to do that there has to be a network to assist these women in these circumstances because this cannot stand this is totally unacceptable in modern america and this is going to lead to not just women dying but abortion providers being threatened being at higher risk than they already were of physical violence because these republicans they're not going to stop at overturning roe v wade they're going to punish people who seek abortions including victims of rape Truly fucking disgusting.
1: Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. you get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.